Welcome to the SWIB podcast, where members of the Wisconsin retirement system can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. As we reach the midway point of 2023, investors continue to navigate a unique set of challenges that have caused, at times, volatile financial markets. Investors continue to face concerns from geopolitical crises and supply chain issues to inflation and rising interest rates and the continued possibility of a recession. The State of Wisconsin Investment Board has worked to meet the challenges head on. But what lies ahead for the second half of 2023? Will the Federal Reserve rethink its most recent decision to pause interest rate hikes? Will inflation start to ease? And will the U.S. continue to face the possibility of a recession? Today, we'll talk with SWIB's head economist and asset and risk allocation chief investment officer, Todd Matina, about what all these headline-grabbing issues mean for investors and the WRS. Todd will share his thoughts on the first half of 2023 and his perspective on what the economic outlook is for the remainder of the year. The SWIB podcast is a regular opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin Retirement System. Please make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this episode with your fellow WRS members and leave a review on Apple Podcasts so it's easier for other members to find this show. Joining us today is Todd Matina, SWIB's Head Economist and Asset and Risk Allocation Chief Investment Officer. Todd joined SWIB in January of this year, bringing with him more than 20 years of experience in economic analysis and investments. Before joining SWIB, Todd was Senior Vice President, Chief Economist, and co-lead of the Multi-Asset Strategies Team at McKenzie Investments in Toronto. Prior to that, Todd was Vice President of Portfolio Construction, Chief Strategist, and Chief Economist at Investment Management Corporation of Ontario. Earlier in his career, Todd worked as a Deputy Division Chief at the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C. He also has worked as a Portfolio Manager of Emerging Market Currencies at Canada Pension Plan Investment Board and contributed to investment models in the G10 currency, cross-country equity selection, and tactical asset allocation strategies. Todd holds a Ph.D. in economics from Queen's University in Ontario, a Master of Arts in Economics from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and a bachelor's degree from Queen's University. Todd, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the SWIB podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Great to have you, Todd. And we thank you for bringing your expertise and that pedigree. That's an impressive resume that Chris just rattled off there. So before we dive into our mid-year economic update, can you tell us a little bit about your role at SWIB? What does a head economist and asset and risk allocation chief investment officer do? Sure. And thanks again for the kind introduction. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm the incoming head of the Asset and Risk Allocation Division at SWIB. So we have a number of responsibilities. My team and I are responsible for developing, recommending, and implementing changes in SWIB's asset allocation and other investment policies. And we do that in conjunction with a number of our stakeholders, including, of course, SWIB's executive director and chief investment officer, our other internal investment leaders, and our board's asset allocation consultants. And with the other hat I wear, which is head economist, I try to support the agency's investment decisions and determine how to leverage economic policy, different insights about potential opportunities, risks, and challenges in our portfolios. Todd, there were a few things that happened recently that everyone was keeping a close eye on. First, we had negotiations that led to an agreement to raise the debt ceiling with the passing of the Federal Responsibility Act just days ahead of the default deadline. 
The Labor Department released its inflation report, which showed that the inflation rate cooled in May to its lowest annual rate in more than two years. And the Federal Reserve decided to hold off on another interest rate hike. There is a lot to unpack here. So let's start with the agreement to raise the debt ceiling. Obviously, that was significant and something where I think everyone let out a collective sigh of relief. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the debt limit deal was an important milestone this year for the U.S. and global financial market stability, really. The deal importantly removed what I would say is one of the key political risks that was hanging over the markets and the broader economy. Even a temporary default, a technical default, would have severely damaged long-term confidence in the U.S. Treasury debt. And that could have potentially raised risk premiums on debt, and that would trickle down negatively to the entire U.S. economy in the form of higher borrowing costs, potentially. It's also important to note, and this is forgotten sometimes, that U.S. Treasuries are a critical part of sometimes what's called the financial system's plumbing, which is as a key source of high-quality collateral and leverage. They're used by banks, pension plans, and other investors to basically source leverage and as collateral in financial transactions. So a default by the treasury, if the debt limit deal hadn't been met, would have left some counterparties suddenly holding treasuries as collateral, but it was in default. And it's really unclear how investors would have responded to that if it could have forced deleveraging and potential liquidation of asset holdings. So it's really obviously great news that a debt limit deal was made and that we avoided stress testing that scenario. And while the debt limit deal is great news, unfortunately, we're not fully out of the woods this year in terms of political risk. There seems to be new political battle lines forming over funding the U.S. government in the upcoming fiscal year after September 30th, although that scenario is not nearly as potentially catastrophic as failing to reach a debt limit deal that could lead to a default. But I would say, you know, even more fundamentally, the debt limit deal, while averting the short term the crisis scenario really kicks the can down the road again to think about how to get U.S. public finances on a more sustainable long-term footing. So the U.S., like many other large developed market economies, needs to start making some hard fiscal decisions on age-related spending pressures that are coming down the pipe as the population ages. And we're starting from a negative position in the sense of large budget deficits and high debt. You know, the U.S. federal government debt is almost 100% of the economy of GDP. And this is at a relatively positive point in the economic cycle with very low unemployment and a strong overall economy. So the starting conditions are fairly negative heading into the next possible recession or some unanticipated economic shock that could hit the economy, like the pandemic hit us by surprise in 2020. We never know what could come down in the next 10 years. So I think the debt limit deal was fantastic. It was good news. It avoided a lot of volatility in markets. It reduced the downside risk to the real economy, but it did kick the can down the road in terms of making some of the hard decisions on U.S. public finances. And then it's been more than a decade since we've seen interest rates as high as they are right now. There had been 10 consecutive interest rate hikes since March of 2022. On June 14th, the Federal Reserve decided not to raise interest rates again. I've seen experts saying that rather than calling this a pause, which would suggest the Fed may not raise its benchmark rate again, we should be calling it a skip, which implies that it probably will raise the rates again, just not now. What does the Fed's decision tell you about what they're thinking about the U.S. economy? Yeah, great question. As you say, the Fed decided in June to pause or skip 
in terms of hiking interest rates, which leaves its policy interest rate, the federal funds rate, in a target range of five to five and a quarter percent. And this remains the highest level for the funds rate since 2007, before the global financial crisis. So what does this mean in terms of the Fed's thinking for the outlook? Well, I think some economists and strategists would describe this as a hawkish pause or a hawkish skip. They skipped this June rate hike really to assess how the impact of the cumulative tightening so far, almost 500 basis points or five percentage points of rate hikes since early 2022, how that's feeding through into the real economy. And then, of course, on top of that, we've had the recent bank turmoil, which further adds tightening in terms of credit and financial conditions in the economy. So on the one hand, you you could see the Fed saying we need to sit back and wait to see what the cumulative impact of all these developments are on the economy. But the Fed is a really interesting and difficult communication challenge here. While pausing, they also updated their projections for the outlook And nearly all members of the Fed voting committee, the FOMC, agreed that more, possibly two rate hikes would be required and appropriate this year to get inflation back under control and back towards a 2% target. So it's a little puzzling because the economic data has been very solid. We saw another high and sticky rate of inflation in the May inflation report. The labor market is extremely tight in terms of the unemployment rate and the number of job vacancies available. We've seen a strong consumer. So given that the data supports a fairly robust economic outlook, quite a bit of economic momentum in the economy and a high and sticky inflation rate well above the Fed's target, and that the Fed itself sees that at least two rate hikes would be appropriate through the end of the year, Communicating the reason for this skip has left some economists a little puzzled and scratching their head. Why Why wait? So I think the Fed has an interesting communication challenge ahead of it to try to explain its positioning. That remains to be seen fully why they've decided to skip. It may prove to be wise if we see suddenly a sharp deceleration in the economy. It would have been wise to slow the pace of rate hikes. But I think based on the incoming data... And remember, this is a Fed that says it's data-dependent in its decisions. It still looks like we have a lot of momentum behind the economy at this point. Yeah, let's dive a little bit deeper into some of these issues that the Federal Reserve is keeping its eye on here, Todd. First, inflation, you mentioned. It's sticky. It's persistent. It continued, I believe, at 4% year over year most recently here. It's something that impacts everyone from the groceries that they buy to the purchase of a new car. And despite slowing a little bit in the data that we got from this most recent inflation report, prices are still up across the board. That's making it harder for your dollar to stretch as far. So do you think that we've reached a peak in terms of the inflation? Yeah, it's an important question that affects a lot of people. I think peak inflation was actually reached last year in 2022. I think we saw peak inflation rates about mid-year in June 2022 when the annual rate of inflation reached just about 9% on an annual basis, well above the Fed's 2% target. Now, as you said, if you look at the latest inflation report for the Consumer Price Index, as of May 2023, we still see high and sticky underlying inflation. Sometimes economists call this core inflation when you strip out the volatile food and energy components 
which can really move the monthly numbers around a lot. If you look through that and look at the underlying pace of inflation, we're still running at a rate of about 5.3% year over year or, or annual inflation of 5.3%, which again is well above the Fed's 2% annual target. So in terms of the peak for core inflation or underlying inflation, also likely saw that peak in 2022. It was 6.6% back in September 2022. So we are seeing these rates of inflation come down from their peaks last year. And that's been driven by lower energy costs, as well as deceleration in the pace of inflation, some more favorable base effects, as economists call it. But a lot of stickiness and high inflation in core services, inflation, and shelter costs, things like rent and owner equivalent costs of housing. These components of inflation that are high and sticky are related closely to the high rate of wage growth and employment cost growth that we're seeing in the U.S. economy right now. We have a very tight labor market and employment costs, wages are rising at an unsustainable pace in the sense of being consistent with a 2% inflation rate. We're seeing wages grow at more in the neighborhood of 55 to 6% on an annual basis, so well ahead of 2% inflation. So until the Fed can cool the labor market and cool down the pace of wage growth in particular, we're likely to see this high and sticky rate of inflation in core services and shelter costs. And that's the key challenge facing the Fed right now. Yeah. And Todd, my old man would tell you that if you want to get out of a hole, first you have to put down the shovel. And, <laughs> you know, here we are, inflation continues. It's sticky with it being where it is. How realistic is it for us to meet the Fed's 2% goal? And will we or can we get there sometime in the near future? I mean, big picture, I think the Fed's 2% inflation target is still very credible. They've spent many years establishing themselves as a credible central bank, as many other major central banks have in the G10 countries. So I believe the target is still credible on a long-term basis. But the key point is that the longer that inflation stays above 2%, the more challenging and painful it'll be to get inflation back down to 2%. And that's why the Fed needs to keep rates in restrictive territory, keep rates higher for longer in the short term to avoid even higher long-term pain. The Fed sees us getting back to their preferred measure of inflation, 2% PCE inflation, by late 2025. So we still have a gradual, steady process of disinflation ahead of us. If you look at markets, the financial markets, in terms of what they believe, you can kind of infer that by looking at derivatives prices and different asset prices to back out what markets are anticipating in terms of average inflation over the next five years, 10 years. And based on these measures, it does look like markets still see the Fed as credible in delivering long-term inflation around 2%. These different measures, sometimes called break-even inflation, which is a good proxy for the expected inflation rate over the next five, 10 years, is coming in around two and a quarter percent or more. So we're still in the neighborhood of our 2% target. So it looks like markets see the Fed as credible at this point. But patience is going to be important because inflation is starting from a high point. You know, at the peak rate, as we were saying, was 9% on an annual basis last year. We're down to 4% on the overall inflation number, about five and a quarter percent on the core inflation number. So it's high, it's well above 2%. And a number of the components like services, rents, are running at very high levels of inflation on an annual basis. They tend to be the stickiest components of inflation. So it's going to be a number of years with steady 
and discipline patients by the Fed to get that overall inflation rate back down to 2%. So Todd, inflation isn't a problem that's exclusive to the U.S. It's something countries around the world are dealing with. The Paris-based Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development said recently that the global economy must steer through a precarious recovery this year and next as inflation keeps dragging on household spending and higher interest rates weigh on growth, banks, and markets. This month, the European Central Bank pressed ahead with another interest rate hike and made clear more are on the way. How do these global decisions impact the U.S. economy? Yeah, it's an important question. Of course, we don't exist in a vacuum. We have to think about the economic outlook and the market outlook from a global perspective. You know, if we look at the European Central Bank, for example, they've just lifted their policy interest rate this week to the highest level since 2001 now in a neighborhood of three and a half percent. As difficult and challenging as macro conditions are in the U.S., it's arguably much more challenging in the Eurozone in Europe right now. You have a central bank that's hiking their interest rate at a time when the Eurozone economy is in a technical recession with two back-to-back quarters of negative GDP growth. And you have the geopolitical backdrop of Russia's war in Ukraine. So very challenging economic conditions in the Eurozone. You also have, from a global perspective, other major central banks have also hiked interest rates in June. So we've seen recent rate hikes by the Bank of Canada and also in Australia, as these concerns about high and sticky inflation have been pretty pervasive across much of the developed major economies today. When I think about the impact for the U.S., there's really two channels, particularly coming from Europe, that I would highlight. So Of course, all the economies in the world are interconnected. I would say the two channels in which the U.S. is mostly affected by conditions in Europe and elsewhere are through the trade channels and then through financial markets. European growth, which has been challenging lately and could get more challenging as the central bank there, the ECB, continues to hike rates. And as they've warned, they do expect to be continuing to hike rates through the year. That blows back into the U.S. in terms of weaker global demand, and that affects international trade, exports, export activity for the U.S., for example. But arguably, what's even more important are the financial linkages. We have very important linkages with the eurozone in terms of bank exposures to European banks, our pension plans, endowments, large pools of capital have significant exposures to asset markets in Europe. So. Changes in risk sentiment that are centered around the Eurozone or other major economies can blow back into U.S. markets as well. So a scenario that I guess we would have to be most concerned about, although I wouldn't call it a base case, is that we see a more severe than expected European recession with continuing high and sticky inflation that forces the ECB into a policy dilemma where they have to choose between raising interest rates into this difficult environment, a recession, making things even worse by hiking interest rates, or whether they try to accommodate that by hiking interest rates maybe less severely, but allowing inflation to run higher than their 2% target for longer. That can blow back to the U.S. in the terms of how it affects U.S. Treasury yields and interest rates here, as well as general market sentiment for risk assets like equities. So far, though, it's interesting to note that the benchmark European stock market despite all of these local economic challenges, has been up very strongly, about 15% year-to-date and over 30% from the low point last fall. Now, Todd, back here in the U.S., you had alluded earlier to the continuing tight labor market being a cause of inflation, and we've seen the number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits 
remained somewhat elevated. What impact does that have on the Fed's fight against inflation? This is, I think, one of the most important parts of what's going on in the economy and how it feeds back into financial markets. You know, the U.S. labor market, like many labor markets in developed major economies, sits in a very tight situation right now. We've seen sizable employment gains, a persistently low unemployment rate, sitting at multi-decade lows or near multi-decade lows, and importantly, a large excess of vacancies, open positions relative to the number of unemployed workers. So not surprisingly, when there's strong demand for labor and not enough workers, we've seen employment costs rise quite significantly. So wages and overall employment costs, including benefits and the total employment costs for an employer has been rising very rapidly, much more rapidly than the Fed's 2% inflation. The unemployment rate today in the U.S. is around 3.7%, which many economists believe is well below an unemployment rate that could be sustained in the long run for a couple of reasons. One, employment gains are running much faster than the rate of population growth, so that can't run forever. And the second is there's a so-called natural rate of unemployment that's just related to normal turnover in the job market. And when the unemployment rate falls below that level, the market gets tight and wage gains start to run faster than what can be sustained in terms of 2% inflation. So not only is the unemployment rate near the multi-decade lows, but the so-called JOLT survey, which shows the number of job vacancies available in the U.S., there's about 1.7 open job vacancies now for every unemployed worker. So it's a very tight labor market from a historical perspective. Now, one thing that could help is that there's been a slow recovery in the so-called participation rate of workers in the workforce. So since the pandemic, we haven't seen the participation rate, that is the number of adult workers, able-bodied workers, come back to the labor force to the same degree as before the pandemic. In fact, the recovery in the participation rate has arguably been slower in the U.S. than in some other major economies, which is creating a lot of research for economists to try to understand that. And of course, the Fed would love to see higher participation because that would bring more workers, more supply to this very tight job market and maybe start to help cool the rate of strong wage growth. And that would, of course, help the Fed achieve its 2% inflation target if we could bring down that strong rate of, of wage and employment cost growth. But we're still hovering at somewhere between 55 and 6% annual pace of wage gains, which is well above what can be sustained or a 2% inflation objective. So bottom line is the Fed, in order to achieve its goal, is going to need to engineer a cooling in this overheating labor market. It has to reduce the pace of wage pressure to get inflation down. Essentially what's happening is labor income growth is running faster than the growth in supply of goods and services. So you know when you have more money chasing not enough goods and services, the market clears that by raising prices and that's how we get inflation. So the Fed has to basically bring that pace of spending growth down to meet the pace of supply growth. And it does that by trying to cool the labor market. So if that wasn't enough, with all those different issues that have influenced the economy and the direction that we go the second half of the year, one topic that caught everyone's attention before that was the mini banking crisis. Is that the correct way to describe what we saw happen with the bank failures, such as Silicon Valley Bank? And is it something we can expect to continue to happen? <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of debate about it, what to call it. Was it a mini bank crisis? 
I think the narrative is settling on bank turmoil. So I think we saw significant bank turmoil earlier this year with small and medium-sized, more regional banks in the U.S. That was a critical development. It was one of those macroeconomic shocks that people didn't see coming. Although in hindsight, it may seem a little obvious because of course, there's been this very abrupt rise in interest rates and that affects banks very specifically, particularly in terms of the financial assets that they hold on their balance sheets. A very rapid rise in interest rates causes losses for banks that aren't hedging those risks properly that result in losses in their portfolios. And in fact, for many of these small and regional banks, there was a perfect storm. I mean, if we go back to Silicon Valley Bank, which was the most extreme example, over 90% of their deposits, which funds their assets, so over 90% of those deposits were uninsured. So that's a very twitchy source of funding. If depositors who are uninsured start to worry about the safety of their deposits, of course they run, creating a bank run, and they run for a larger and a perceived safer bank. Now, the impact of this, when it first started to unwind, many economists and those in the market, many market participants believed that this was raising the odds of a recession in 2023 in anticipation of a so-called credit crunch that as the overall banking sector absorbed these shocks with Silicon Valley and, and other banks like Signature Bank and First Republic Bank, that banks would hold back lending, hold back lending growth, and this would create a bit of a credit crunch that would feed through into the real economy in terms of slower pace of spending, slow down the pace of momentum and economic activity, and ultimately just increase the risk of recession. So this was clearly a concern that the Federal Reserve had as well. We saw in certain survey evidence that the Fed runs, the so-called Fed Survey of Senior Loan Officers, that senior bank officers were reporting a tightening in lending conditions. So credit standards were tightening, and that's usually a good leading indicator that loan growth would slow six to 12 months going forward. And what's interesting about that survey, we saw that they were tightening these standards even before the bank turmoil started to unfold before us. So conditions were tightening. And then on top of that, we had the trouble with a number of the regional banks. So it does altogether suggest that we're going to see a tightening in general credit conditions in the second half of this year and possibly into 2024. And it makes sense. Banks are naturally concerned about their funding positions. They have to be concerned about holding on to their deposits. And they don't want any perception that they've loosened their credit standards inappropriately, that they're executing very strong credit underwriting standards. So they understand that depositors and investors both are looking for the next domino to fall. So a natural reaction is to tighten lending standards and to make sure they're balance sheets look as healthy as possible. And you know the bottom line for the Fed, coming back to the Fed and the interest rates, they face a so-called trilemma, as some economists have called it. They need to keep interest rates restrictive, higher for longer, to keep inflation under control and, and reach their 2% inflation target. But the trilemma part is that they're putting at risk further bank turmoil and, of course, rising unemployment as the economy cools. So achieving all three of these goals, a stable labor market, financial market stability, and 2% inflation can sometimes involve difficult trade-offs or a so-called trilemma. So this is where the Fed finds itself today. The good news is it appears that the bank turmoil has moderated. It appears that the situation is stabilizing. It hasn't turned into a big systemic banking problem like in 2008 when we saw major international banks and investment banks fail or get into significant trouble or distress. 
So it feels like we're now at a stage, time will tell, but it seems at this point, the acute phase of the bank turmoil is behind us and we're into more of the chronic phase where we may start to see more tight lending standards, but not full-scale banking issues. And then we had some positive news recently in terms of the stock market, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ notched fresh 13-month highs earlier this month. Both indexes reached their highest closing levels since April of 2022. What does that tell you? And will the upswing persist? Yeah, critical question for investors. So you're right. I mean, from a technician's perspective, the stock market has gained 20% from the low in October last year. So some technicians will call this a bull market. The NASDAQ of tech stocks is up by about a third from its low point in late 2022. So very strong gains in U.S. equity markets since the low points last year. But there's a number of things to take into account when we think about this really strong rebound in equity markets, which of course is good news for investors. But to your point about whether it's sustainable, performance of large cap U.S. stocks, you know, if we look at the S&P 500 index, has been concentrated, you know, in terms of leadership by a very narrow set of stocks, basically seven big tech stocks that have gained over 40% this year, and some even more, have really led the overall rally in the market, in the total market. So big, large cap tech names, names that we've all heard of, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, Meta, like these kinds of names have had very strong gains. While the rest of the S&P 500, the other 490 names in the index have been a little bit more sluggish. They've rebounded somewhat year to date, but nowhere near as much as we've seen in these seven names that together now drive a significant share of the total large cap market. You know, it's worth noting that Apple, just one name, is worth more now in terms of its market cap value than the entire Russell 2000 index of small cap companies. So it's quite remarkable. And of course, we've also seen a lot of enthusiasm in the stock market around certain themes like AI and the potential AI has to revolutionize the productivity side of the economy. And NVIDIA, the maker of AI-related chips, has surged by about $640 billion this year in market value alone. So quite extraordinary gains in this narrow set of companies. So if we want to see, to your question, is this sustainable? I think the question is, do we see these seven names fall back to earth somewhat, or does the other 490 some odd names in the S&P 500 catch up in sense of the valuations? And I think that's going to be the key in terms of whether this is an ongoing sustainable rally. Sometimes strategists will refer to this as market breadth, you know, seven names versus the whole market. Now, I think it comes down to, will we have a recession? Those 490 some odd names, many of them are more cyclical. They're more value-like stocks, many of them. And because of that, they have a more cyclical exposure or sensitivity. So if we have a recession in the next 12 months, it'll be difficult to see those names rallying and catching up. However, if a recession is avoided and the Fed is successful in engineering the so-called soft landing in the economy where we can avoid a deep recession to bring inflation back down to 2%, if we can achieve that, then there's a, a better chance that we can see the equity market gain sustained. So it certainly seems like we're seeing a lot of economic crosswinds here. We've got positives, we've got negatives, things to be concerned about. 
given all of these different competing factors here, what is that long-term economic outlook then, Todd? Right. And as a pension fund manager, it's all about the long-term. Our investment horizon is very long-term. At the end of the day, we need to be thinking about how to fund our pension liabilities over the next 30 plus years. So while it's important to monitor macroeconomic conditions, risks, opportunities over the next two to five years, we can't keep our eyes off the long-term outlook. It's really all about the long-term outlook. So I think you're asking a really important question. Now to our long-term view, maybe one of the most important themes on the long-term outlook is where will interest rates head over the long-term? In the 2010s, interest rates really hit unprecedented low levels, including long-term interest rates. 10-year, 30-year bonds were yielding very low levels. And in some economies, we were seeing 10-year yields in negative territory, like in Europe. So once we get through this choppy period in the macro environment, central banks get back to 2% inflation, say after 2025, are we headed back to that world where interest rates fall back to those very low levels? Or are we in a new so-called regime? Are we in a new regime where interest rates will be higher for longer now? And that has huge implications in terms of funding of long-term liabilities, like pension liabilities. That has big implications in terms of the fair value of major asset classes, most asset classes, in fact. So this is the key question. And you know, when you look at it, since the early 1980s, we've seen this long-term 40-year secular decline in both the average inflation rate and in the long-term bond yields, take the 10-year treasury yield. So in every market cycle since 1980, the average rate of inflation and the average interest rate was lower than the previous cycle. And we saw that continue all the way until this most recent cycle where we've had a break in that long-term trend. For the first time, we're seeing inflation and interest rates much higher than the previous cycle. So that naturally begs the question, is, is this a structural break from the last 40 years, a new regime, or just a choppy period related to the pandemic, and it's just short-term noise. It's very difficult to know the answer, but I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle where we're likely to see interest rates after inflation higher than what we've seen, say, in the 2010s. And there's good reasons to think that that will be the case. Government debt and debt levels in general around the world are much higher than they were before the pandemic. There's higher spending going on than there was before the pandemic, both by governments and by consumers. So if you think of all the different spending needs governments will be facing over the next decade, everything from defense spending, security-related spending, population age-related spending, if you think about entitlement-related spending, all of these things will add more fiscal pressure, more spending pressure. And when there's more spending relative to the amount of savings, that market-clearing response is to drive up the required interest rate. And so there's good reasons to think that maybe the equilibrium, the so-called real interest rate or interest rate after inflation could be higher than what we saw in the 2010s, but likely lower than what we've seen this year during this bumpy period where the Fed has really moved interest rates into very restrictive territory to get inflation back down to 2%. So I don't think we're going to see such high levels of interest rates as that in the long term, but higher than what we saw before the pandemic seems likely. So when you have an economy that's dealing with all these different issues, like we just discussed, and an economic outlook, as you just explained, and you touched on this a little bit, but what does that mean for SWIB's overall investment strategy for the WRS? 
So SWIB is a long-term investor. We have to be given, as we were just mentioning, our horizon is long because our liability is long. We're funding pension liabilities, pension benefits that must be paid out over the next 30 plus years to all our contributors and beneficiaries. So our investment strategy is necessarily long horizon. Perhaps our most important investment decision is thinking about our asset allocation. What is our asset allocation? And we have to make sure that we're designing an overall asset mix that can fund our liabilities over the long term. So that's our key issue. And we have to do it in a way that recognizes not only the risk tolerance of our stakeholders in terms of investment risk tolerance, how much volatility can we withstand in the market, but also importantly, we want to reduce the risk of negative outcomes to our stakeholders, such as active contributors into the plan. We don't want to see contributions rates suddenly go up sharply. And then very importantly for our retirees who count on us to provide a dividend for growth in their benefit over time, generally tracking the pace of average inflation over the long term, we don't want to be running an investment strategy that's so high risk that we jeopardize the dividend rate. So we think about that in terms of finding a sweet spot in our overall asset allocation, one that achieves long-term funding of our liabilities, but without undue risk on the investment side, and while also trying to reduce as much as possible adverse risks to our contributors and the retirees. As a long-term investor, we have an interesting edge over, say, the typical investor in the marketplace. Because our horizon is so long, we also are in a unique position that we can look for those opportunities that many active investors can't touch because they're very sensitive to short-term marking the market, short-term moves in asset prices. We have the luxury of a big balance sheet, ample liquidity, and a very long horizon. So when we see asset classes that are dislocated or fundamentally misvalued from their long-term fundamentals, we can tilt our asset allocation in that direction to take advantage of that and benefit our beneficiaries and our stakeholders over the long term. So that's a key part of our investment strategy and we'll continue to be monitoring fundamental valuations of our of various asset classes that we're exposed to, looking for those risks, but also opportunities. Todd, we said at the outset there was a lot to unpack and I think we did a pretty good job of it today. This was a great discussion, a lot of good information. Appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much. Real pleasure and hope to come back. And thank you to all our listeners for checking out this episode of the SWIB Podcast. The SWIB Podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for business is podcampmedia.com with audio engineering and editing by Matt Kovarubias and additional editing by Emily Kaysinger. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.